This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Saki Santarelli. Saki is director of the internationally acclaimed Stress Reduction Clinic at the University of Massachusetts Memorial Medical Center, executive director of the Center for Mindfulness in Medicine, Healthcare, and Society, and associate professor of medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. He has more than 30,000 hours of clinical experience in mindfulness-based stress reduction, known for short as MBSR, and has trained thousands of people, including patients, physicians, nurses, teachers, clergy, business executives, inmates, and correctional staff. He's the author of the book, Heal Thyself, Lessons on Mindfulness in Medicine, and he's recently worked with Florence Malio Meyer of the Center for Mindfulness and Sounds True, to create the MBSR Online Training Course, a comprehensive online training in mindfulness-based stress reduction. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Saki and I spoke about mindfulness as an act of remembering. We also talked about how stress operates in the body and our habitual responses to stress and how the practice of MBSR helps us interrupt or pause and respond differently when we find ourselves in stressful situations. We also talked about the evidence for the benefits of MBSR and is there a correct dosage of mindfulness training that's required. And finally, we talked about, on a personal level, how MBSR training has impacted Saki Santarelli. Here's my very honest and warm conversation with Saki. Saki, I've heard you describe mindfulness as an act of hospitality. And I wonder here at the beginning for our listeners if you could both define mindfulness and then describe how it's an act of hospitality. I'd be glad to do that. I'd say I really see mindfulness as an act of love uh, in, in, in so far as um, if mindfulness is about, well, the operational definition is paying attention on purpose in the present moment, not judgmentally, but that's a very, uh, while it's valuable, it's, it, it doesn't say that it, it it maybe leaves some things out because it's it's not the paying attention in in and of itself uh, that cultivates mindfulness, but there's a certain quality of, if you will, heartfulness or or a kind of tenderness or openness that uh, really contributes and is necessary. It's a necessary ingredient or element of what we typically call mindfulness, even if you will, a kind of goodness. Uh, and so when I talk about hospitality, I'm speaking about an attitude and a kind of in, inward uh, posture towards which we meet uh, our moments uh, and events in our lives, whether they're internal or external. So, you know, we've all had, maybe many of us at least, have had a kind of education, if you will, in being hospitable to people that come to our house. We, you know, offer them food, we 
take their coats. We we um, invite them in, and and uh, we meet them, and uh, and we meet them at a level that has a certain quality of intimacy. Often, and uh, this goes way back in you know our Western uh, heritage and roots that when you typically met somebody in the Middle East and. It, still the case in parts of the Middle East and in Greece, that you, the first thing, you, that you don't ask them what they do. You don't even ask them much about who they are. You you in, wash their feet, take their clothes, uh, you know, their robe off or their cloak and, and uh, offer them food. And so when I talk about mindfulness and hospitality, it is about offering that same quality of attention and attending, if you will, uh, and that same quality of intimacy or nearness to what arrives in the mind, in the body, and in the world around us. Now, when I think of mindfulness as a formal practice, and I know that's part of the way that it's presented in mindfulness-based stress reduction work, this is a, a formal practice that you do X minutes, you sit and you pay attention on purpose, in the present moment, non-judgmentally. That, I think it's probably relatively easy for people to have a sense of what that might be like, the practice of mindfulness in a formal way. But this idea that I could be mindful in each moment of my life, how do I do that when there's so many different things going on? What do I pay attention to in the moment? Well, the short answer, and it could sound like a wise guy answer, is whatever's happening. And, but but if we sort of elaborate on that so that it makes it clearer, uh, certainly in MBSR and in our work in the stress reduction clinic, we have been for all of these 34 years in, introducing to people to what you just referred to as, in quotes, formal mindfulness practice, meaning you set aside a certain amount of time every day to actually exercise that muscle of attention, of awareness, of a certain kind of intimacy and openness and curiosity. Uh, and there is an operational element of that. It's kind of just, it's really not so different than playing the scales, uh, learning to play music. You know, you have to, you have to begin and you, you, uh, you train, if you will. Uh, and, and then of course, even if, as in our case, people practice 45 to 60 minutes a day, uh, you still have 23 hours uh, when when you're not practicing formally. And all of those moments are occasions to be awake or to be aware. And so informal practice really simply has to do with being somewhat deliberate and attentive to moments that are as simple as taking a shower and actually feeling the water, for instance, on the body, because often enough you probably have noticed, and all of us have probably noticed, that we're not even here for the shower. We're we're somewhere else. We're in a meeting, and the shower is just a, a kind of uh, something we're passing through on the way from here to there, uh, cutting vegetables, uh, walking in the door at the end of the day and, and meeting the people that you care about. Uh, uh, noticing what it's like when you step out of your car on the way to work and feel the, the snow down your, you know, the back of your collar uh, or or the feel of the hands uh, on the steering wheel as you drive or uh, noticing the the trees around you at a red light. All of those are, are moments where we can be deliberate about becoming attentive and um and uh, as well we have certainly over the years our participants report to us so that you might call deliberate deliberate formal practice you're kind of priming the pump but uh what people often report is is that out of that kind of deliberateness they also notice m- what they really, or what we call spontaneous moments of mindfulness in everyday life. Like, they just say, I never saw the tree like that before in my backyard. Or, I can't believe how green the grass is. Or, 
the smells around me that I never noticed before. And and those are not either contrived or attempted to be attended to. They just happen. And so in that sense, people are really simply saying they're beginning to get in touch with the richness of the moment, the richness of everyday life, the richness that surrounds us that we don't often uh, see and or feel or touch or taste uh, directly. There is something about all of that that I think is really important, and that is to really begin to explore the possibility that attention is actually an offering. That we are offering our attention to the breath or to sensations in the body or to the cutting of vegetables or the preparing of the meal or the lighting of the candle or the bathing of our child. And when we offer attention, we always get something back. And so it becomes a very reciprocal uh, uh, and relational process, this something that we call mindfulness. And in that way, often enough, the kind of subject-object views that we often hold about how life is and what we're attending to begin to, in fact, fall away. People start to wonder, well, is the rain inside of me or is it outside of me? I'm hearing it, in quotes, but it's a little fuzzier if there's a boundary. And I think in part that comes out of that sense of you offer and there's a return. There's an offering and a returning. Almost think of it as like kind of like a blessing. Yeah, it's beautiful. I love that. I want to dig a little deeper, though, because... Sometimes I think I hear people talking about being mindful as something that, you know, it's possible to do 24-7. And as you were talking, it was like there's the category of formal practice, 45, 60 minutes a day. There's deliberate mindfulness in the shower or when I'm eating, when I can imagine periods like that I'm by myself. I tune in to the sensations and I'm really present when I'm washing dishes or eating a meal. That makes sense to me. And then the third category you talked about, spontaneous moments. Maybe I'm, you know, walking outside and I, you know, see something beautiful. I get that. But then there's the rest of my life that doesn't fit into those categories. And my question is, how do I bring more mindfulness, if you will, into that fourth category, which is all the rest of my hours? Yeah. Well, a really good question, Tammy, and I'm no expert uh, because I certainly can't say that I'm awake and aware 24 hours of the day, 365, uh, and I'm not sure that that's the goal or if there is a goal yeah. in, in that sense at all. But I think you're asking a, a really intriguing and important question, uh, and here's 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 at least some part of my sense of that in part i think that mindfulness is about remembering and i don't really mean remembering like where i put my keys uh or you know where i left my hat uh i mean remembering in a more oh fundamental way uh, I mean remembering in the sense of remembering some sense of who I actually am. Uh, and so in those other moments that you're talking about, that becomes really helpful. So, you know, just the other day, you know, it happens to all of us, but I'm thinking of a moment that just happened yesterday I or two days ago at home. I came home and, and I was, you know, hanging out with my wife. We were talking about something or other. Uh, you know, the content's not important in, in the context of what we're talking about. And I noticed that there was a little edge to my response. And, and 
and she noticed it too. <laughs> and in that moment, I said to her, because I, I, I noticed it, that I was sorry, and that I realized I'd been working really hard the last three days, and I was tired. And that it had nothing to do with anything that she said or didn't say. So, so it's a moment of me taking stock and where it all started was in the body, in my body. Like I felt something in my chest or sort of, you know, solar plexus area that helped me it alerted me in some way to that sharpness I just described or that little abruptness. And I heard it in my voice. The body is an amazingly powerful reference point. And my sense is that we often get so disconnected from the body that we're no longer able to use it as an instrument of understanding. Not just of information, but of a certain kind of knowledge that has implications in our lives. And so I think one of those gateways that you're talking about is for us to be far more attentive to the body, not in the sense of reifying the body as better than the mind in any way, if you will, but of beginning to become much more attentive to its existence and what it offers us in terms of our capacity to to see, to feel, to adjust, to to make choices and and I know certainly in our work with the people we serve in the stress reduction clinic and and in our professional training world, that is one of the areas we're really you know intend on on people becoming much more attentive and available because it has everything to do with our ability to be embodied and that sense of embodiment i I have a real experience of of um, helping to ground me and allow me to be more alert to the little moments and the big moments when I might need to be more attentive or I might need to refrain on purpose from a usual conditioned reaction. Your example is really helpful and I think something people can probably relate to. And I'm curious, here at the Center for Mindfulness, you've put a lot of attention into understanding stress and how stress affects us. You mentioned you had three busy days at work and you know I think people can relate to that. And I'd love to know what it is that you've discovered about how stress is operating in our bodies and what the practice of mindfulness does to change our habitual responses to stress. Yeah, and I think you've really nailed it by using the term our habitual, our habitual, and we, in, in our parlance, we would say our habitual reactions. Uh, and and in that way, we, we would delineate between reactions which are not necessarily bad. I mean, our capacity to react to a, a car that's moving into our lane on a fast-moving highway is nothing less than spectacular and highly orchestrated and largely speaking outside of our uh, deliberate cognitive functions, and it's a darn good thing it is because it usually gets us out of the way and it helps us survive. And so that sense of being reactive in some cases or reacting uh, is is a lifesaver, literally and figuratively, uh, just so we're all clear about that. But often enough, our reactions are habitual, which means really they're conditioned. 
They're based on history. They're based on memory. They're based on the past. And and often enough, those reactions may very well have been uh, productive. I like to think that they might have even been evolutionary. Like, this is the best I could do when I was six or five or ten, or this is even what the situation called for when I was, you know, at some point in my life. And it, it, it in quotes, worked. It helped me survive. It helped me ameliorate a threat. It helped me to, in some ways, thrive. And, um, but nearly, like nearly any habit, over time, uh, it becomes a pattern that that may or may not work. So that, in some ways, you could say the menu gets restricted in terms of here I am in situation A. Do I usually pull? solution B out of my pocket or solution C uh, and and out of habit that's usually what happens and so the the other possibility or another possibility is to learn to respond more to 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 what we typically call stress or stressful situations or demanding situations in ways that um, uh, are less mechanical, less um, the the product of a kind of automatic pilot uh, conditioning, and more context-specific. Like, in this situation, A or B might still be the best thing, but the best response. But what about Z? Z might be the best response. But if my m- menu is narrowed, I never get to Z. And and typically, the body plays a large role in us getting to Z or not getting to Z. It doesn't play the only role. The mind clearly plays a role in us maybe getting to Z if Z is the right uh, response. And so in that way, uh, the sense of being able to stop which is its practice in and of itself, because essentially momentum, at least my experience of it is, you know, thousands of medical patients I've worked with experience is that motion is intoxicating. Momentum is kind of intoxicating. And so we will easily do something or say something or act in a way that one second later we say, why did I do that again? How did that come out of my mouth again? I can't believe I made the same choice that I've made before that never really works. And it's in hindsight. And it's often not in very distant hindsight, but almost immediately we realize I just fell back into the same old pattern. And so the capacity to sort of stop or to pause enough to see a situation is part of the the, if you will, training in MBSR, the capacity to, when we stop, nearly automatically, we see things more clearly or more broadly. Um, an example is, I, you know, while it's a sports metaphor or a sports example, I apologize. I do remember reading Michael Jordan one time saying that when he gets into the heated intensity of the game, sometimes his vision gets too narrow or got too narrow since he's not playing any longer because he was trying to uh, push the game. And he said, in those moments, I have to stop. It doesn't mean he has to stop dribbling the basketball or running or whatever, but he's talking about inwardly. And I have to let the game come to me. And when that happens, he said, I see passing lanes I never saw before. I see teammates on the court I didn't see moving in a particular way before that I might be able to, you know, make a connection with uh, uh, around scoring another basket. And I think that that's true for all of us. Is in some or other, the stopping allows us to see the game, if you will, a little bit more closely. In the case of stress, we begin to feel the sensations in the body more, uh, more uh, with more clarity or more acuity. 
those sensations that often trigger particular kinds of thoughts and particular kinds of emotions that lead to particular kinds of responses or usually particular kinds of reactions. So that stopping, that seeing, uh, allows us to understand things a little bit more clearly so that we could choose, like, do I want to do this again? Do I want to act like this again? Is there something else possible here? And I think that that's a gradual kind of process where we just continue, keep, keep continually are building that muscle of bringing attention to the body, bringing attention to the thoughts and emotions that are arising in situations. And it's not like it takes minutes. We we can sense those things very quickly. Largely, they're acting unconsciously and driving us anyway. And the process of becoming more mindful, those largely just below the surface of awareness, uh, habits and patterns, begin to become seen. And I know in our work, in the early parts of our eight-week course, people report a period of time when they're seeing more clearly, but they can't make any changes. And it's painful. Or when they're seeing their reactivity more clearly and the um, the outcome of those actions and and the ways that they feel disappointed or frustrated or they even grieve about it. Uh, and I just think that that's all part of the learning process. And, of course, it's also a part of of, of mindfulness practice itself. Like, how do we hold, hold ourselves in those moments of feeling, you know, grieved or disappointed or inept or incompetent? Isn't that part of the hospitality process? How do we make room for those strangers that arrive at our door, for those unwanted guests, and and see if it's possible to learn from them? And then, you know, gradually, I, my experience is more than my experience. It is my experience. People report the first glimmers of, you know, I was in the situation I'm typically in, and I didn't do the same thing. And it's not as if once you change it once, it's done for good. But people get a taste of, oh, this is what it means to stop. This is what it means to to see things a little bit more clearly and then be more deliberate about, I think I'll, I'll, I could meet that situation differently. And And that is moving from reacting to responding. And, you know, quite honestly, Tammy, at least in my experience, it's a very uneven process. It isn't as like looking at a a resume or a CV that looks like you've just mounted one, uh, you know, mountain peak after the next. But it's filled with kind of, you know, ups and downs and peaks and valleys where there's some level of integration and then everything breaks down and you think, God, I'm not learning anything. I've been at this for three weeks or three years or three decades. Uh, and then there's a kind of new level of integration, and it's and not a linear process, but it's a it's an adventurous process, nonetheless. Well, that's helpful to hear you say that as someone who's been practicing mindfulness for a long time to report its unevenness. That probably really normalizes that for people. Well, at least, I mean, that's my experience. And I talked to lots of people about this, and I'd say that unevenness is fairly much across the board. Now, Saki, this is just a, a dot I'd like you to connect and just to make something explicit that's you've been pointing to here, which is this ability to stop or interrupt a pattern. How do we develop that ability through the formal practice of mindfulness? What's the connection there? Well, that's a wonderful connection because people need to understand that in some way, in a both in a direct way and and I think as well in a more conceptual way. Uh, and and I think it goes something like this: every time that we, you know, I'm going to be uh, sort of colloquial. Every time we plunk our butts on the cushion whether that cushion is the chair or the floor. Every time we decide to stretch out, I'm 
talking about in this case MBSR or mindfulness practice in general, and and you know lift our leg or practice yoga or some other body discipline. Uh, if we're talking about formally in this case, those moments or those decisions are actually uh, are we're actually stepping into the into the training ring, if you will, at those moments, or what I like to call even more so the laboratory. And the laboratory is our own lives, our own experience. And so in those moments in the formal practice, we are actually training the mind, training the body, and for this matter, training the heart. And because everything that happens inside the formal practice is none other than a slice of our lives that inside the specialized condition of formal practice, we can see a little bit more clearly. So, for example, we may be sitting and having moments of, you know, calmness or tranquility or pleasantness, and then, you know, the right hip begins to ache. Or the 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 itch on our nose seems to become unbearable well those sensations in the body at this moment are nothing other than or they are certainly similar to our everyday lives you know everything's just going along hunky dory until something changes some unpleasantness arises could be even minor but it really throws us. Similarly, when we're practicing formally, we are far more attentive to what's passing through the mind, largely in the form of thoughts and emotions. And so all of a sudden we see that there's thoughts, there's emotions, there's bodily sensations that are all um, unanticipated. They're all a surprise. They're all here. And so what begins to occur in formal mindfulness practice is we learn something about relationality, and particularly in the cases I'm describing, how to be in relationship to those sensations, how to be in relationships to those thoughts, how to be in relationship to those feelings or those emotions. Uh, and, and, and if you will, over time, maybe we could say how to even be in wiser relationship to those sensations, those thoughts, and those emotions, because we all know that you know we'll get a particular sensation in the hip, and then we'll have the thought, uh, "This is killing me," and then we'll have you know an emotion, maybe it's fear, or it's you know it's uh, uh, grief, or it's anger. Uh, because it's interrupting my meditation practice. Now, that's no different than what's happening to us outside the laboratory of formal practice when somebody cuts us off on the highway or when our boss says, you need to do this and not that, or when we have a fight with our teenager. Uh, The unexpected is arising, and so the formal practice is a kind of uh, training camp if you will, for what happens that we get to look at more closely so that we can maybe be more attentive to it when it happens outside the laboratory of formal practice because the meditation is nothing other than a slice of our lives that we get to see with a little bit more, um, hopefully, a little bit more clarity because we are we are offering our attention to it. And in our offering, it is revealing something back to us that might have enormous potential in our everyday lives. I don't know if that's too elaborate, but that's my experience, is it? What happens in the laboratory becomes so valuable for life outside the laboratory. And, of course, I'm making a dualism between inside and outside, but just for the sake of the concept. When people get that, there's a real figure ground switch, and that figure ground switch is that 
people realize all of a sudden the meditation doesn't end at the 45 minutes. That the whole life is an opportunity to be to be in that kind of relationship with our experience. And that's a real turner. I can tell you that in the process of the eight-week MBSR course, when people all of a sudden touch that figure ground switch, then practicing becomes really interesting for people. Because it's no longer just doing this exercise. People all of a sudden say things like, wait a second, this isn't about stress reduction. This is about my life. And you know what? They're right. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. Sounds True hosts an annual wake-up festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. This is a gathering of spiritual teachers, artists, poets, and anyone interested in the many faces of awakening. For more information about the Wake Up Festival, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash wake up. And now back to Insights at the Edge. I'm curious, Saki, have you seen that a certain number of hours of formal practice is really required for people to start seeing the kind of benefits you're describing? Is there some sort of minimum dosage required? I, you know, I wish I wish I could answer that. And, you know, the the studies have attempted to look at doses, you know, at what's called dose response. You know, does, and I don't, and, and there are some inklings of dose response, but we don't really know yet. Or at least I can say I don't know yet. I think that is as well an, un, an uneven kind of process. And so, you know, some people come back after week one and say that they notice positive differences and some people come back after week four and say i don't think i'm getting this at all and 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 often enough the people that say they're not getting it all are are maybe getting more than they imagine uh or maybe they're not it's hard to know but i can't honestly say to you that that i know what that actually is around the dose response don't know I think it's not a sta- I don't think it's standard for anybody or for everybody. I'm curious what we do know in terms of the quote unquote evidence base for yeah. MBSR because this is one of the big claims of course about how the MBSR training differs from other approaches to meditation is that there's all of this scientific proof that this is an evidence-based form of practicing. So what do we know for sure? Well, first of all, I guess I'd like to frame it a little bit. I, I never think about it as it's different than and it's been and and we have proof. I my own view is is that we're in the infancy of the science. And it may be that we think what what we think we know to it's fairly inevitable actually that we think that what we think we know today won't be true in ten years, uh, and and uh, and of course that's the way science is all the time. When you think about it, fifteen years ago or twenty years ago, no one believed that there was such thing as neuroplasticity. Uh, you know that the that you know the the brain was a continually changing organ, uh, and that it was producing new neurons. Uh, nobody believed ten years ago that stress was actually a critical factor in morbidity and mortality in people's lives. 30 years ago, stress wasn't even considered a major risk factor in most diseases. That's changed. Uh, Ten or five years ago, people didn't realize that stress had powerful impacts or how they showed up in the lives of infants, 
as different than in the lives of adolescents, as different than the lives of adults. We now know way more about that. And so um, so I can't say that, you know, MBSR has proven anything. I think what I can say safely is that there's, there is a body of scientific literature uh, suggesting that there is efficacy for a wide range of medical and psychological conditions for people who practice mindfulness. We now know even from the basics and but you know for the longest time and still the answer was all right even if there is an effect and even if it's an efficacious or positive effect we don't know why or how. We don't know the mechanisms and so you could say in the last four or five years and that neuroscience and has been attempting to to suggest how this works and now the field of epigenetics is beginning to suggest look if we took take the if we study the the you know the way that genes up and down regulate in r- real time with uh with meditators we see that some you know, there's an up and down regulation of genes that have very powerful control over parts of the body in terms of tumor suppression or inflammatory processes. And so nothing's been proven yet. But but what I, what I think is happening in science is we're beginning to get a feeling for, if you will, and I think that that's how science works, places to look to begin to understand the mechanisms of efficacy, but we do are we are certainly developing a body of literature suggesting that that you know relatively intensive training in mindfulness meditation is has is efficacious for for people who have a range of medical and psychological conditions and and those studies just keep uh, continuing to unfold. I mean, in the last five years, to probably more than 12 or 1500 papers written about mindfulness and MBSR in the scientific literature. And, you know, there's a kind of exponential rise in that literature. I am sure that that, that will change because nothing continues to uh, go exponential forever. And then we'll refute some things that we thought we knew, or we'll understand them in new ways. But at the moment, it looks like our capacity to train the mind, become more deliberately attentive, to 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 in fact re-educate and self-educate this common human capability of paying attention, can have a a range of positive effects, and for people at various points along the lifestyle, from preschool to adulthood, and and. Uh, and in some ways, I think that that's that that uh, attention that's being uh, given through the science is uh, we live in a very psychologically and scientifically minded culture on one hand, and so I think in some level that's giving a certain kind of credence to all of this. But of course, as you and I both know, and your listeners as well. You know, meditation wasn't developed to light up an fMRI machine or to, you know, uh, uh, you know, up or down regulate our genes. Uh, and so there are qualitative shifts that people report as well. And, and those wind up being, I think, absolutely as important to people suggesting, for instance, that they're more capable of being fluid, flexible. Uh, of feeling more at ease, at feeling more comfortable in their own skin, uh, at uh, learning new ways to uh, be in relationship to their own internal experience or to the people around them or to the world more generally. And, and, uh, And science is just, you know, one way to study that, one way to, you know, attempt to validate it. It's not the only way. I'm curious, Saki, in your experience, here you've been practicing MBSR uh, for how long? Well, I've been I've been at the stress reduction clinic uh, 
as a full-time employee here and as a for 30 years and I came 32 years ago I was the first intern in the stress reduction clinic in 1981 and I'd been practicing mindfulness for well I've been practicing meditation for 10 years before I got here so uh, it's you know 41 years I think now into that adventure and you mentioned to us that you know your own process has been one of uneven discovery of the benefits. They come. It's not just a a linear straight line. I'm curious if there's anything that you could say, you know, I thought that meditation and MBSR training would deliver this thing to me. And, you know, it just hasn't, actually. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh, Well, you know, that's an interesting question, Tammy, because my expectations about what it should or ought to deliver have changed along with, <laughs> have changed as well over the years. I, I'm on, I don't think I'm actually looking for it to deliver something to me uh, these days. And and um, and uh, that's a relief. Uh, I'm much more curious about simply being engaged than I am about it delivering some specific um, skill. And of course, you you could ask and you'd be absolutely right to ask, well, then why do you keep it up? Uh, and, and I think it's because for me at this point in my life, it's it's more a way of being. It's more a way of being in yeah, uh, how shall I say? It's a way that I I experience as being enormously helpful. Helpful is even too weak a word to inhabit my life. Like I want to be in relationship to all of it: the pleasant, the unpleasant, the joyful, the sorrowful. Uh, and so mindfulness practice, and I don't mean just in the formal sense, uh, offers, offers, I can't say offers me that. I would say that's my experience of it. Is that it allows me to live more fully into the into what it's like to live a, a full life. And it keeps keeps it keeps it keeps telling it keeps showing me new things all the time. It keeps un 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 it keeps revealing something new. It's not like repeating the experience. I'm sure you must encounter many, many people who come to an MBSR training and their objective is not to be in relationship to everything that's happening in their life. They don't necessarily want to be in relationship to the painful right. things. That's they, exactly they right. want to get out of pain, and that's why they're coming to the MBSR training. So how, yeah, how, that's how, why it was yeah. developed. So what about that? Yeah, I'm curious how you address that person who says, "Well, I'm here. Well, I'm here to get out what? of pain." You know, my feeling is is that meditation is kind of like a developmental catalyst, and it will touch you wherever you are in your life. And so, I'm just as happy when somebody comes to the the stress reduction clinic to take an MBSR course, and they say, "I have one goal. I want to be more relaxed." I want to be more at ease. And if that's what they leave with, to me, that's wonderful. That's enough. There are other people that might come with that goal, and all of a sudden, they actually confront some element of what we would typically or would call the more existential moments or or wonderings in a life. Like they ask a question some weeks later, who's observing? 
I don't ask that question. They ask that question. Or they say at the end of eight weeks, this is the most spiritual experience I ever had. And since I haven't talked to them about spirituality, then all I have to do is say, is that so? Can you say something about what you mean by that? Because then they're not trumpeting my brand or aligning with what they think I want to hear. But that whether it's that they've come to be more relaxed or to reduce their pain or to, you know, uh, in some ways to hopefully ameliorate some of their high blood pressure, they all have a place in the room. Uh, it's a perfectly fine place to begin and and to begin this this journey, this exploration. And I don't have a kind of... Uh, I'm not giving them some kind of cognitive explanation of what meditation and mindfulness is all about and what the benefits of it, of, of it are uh, as a kind of promise. So there's no selling it. So if they come for pain, then great, let's see what happens. There are no guarantees here that it will your pain will change in any way, but if you're willing to, to to practice for the next eight weeks, if you're willing to show up for class, if you're willing to be in relationship to yourself, I'm willing to be in relationship with you, and I'll support you all the way along the way, and certainly often enough after it's all over. And then you be the judge if if this was helpful or not. And in what ways it might or might not have been helpful. That's beautiful. I like it. It's a completely open system for people to step well, into. Well, it is, and it also means we don't have to sell it. We never sell it. In fact, we're much more often doing the opposite of saying to people, are, are you prepared for this? It's stressful to take the stress reduction program. And it is because it means you have to make a change in lifestyle virtually immediately. Well, what does that mean? Well, all of a sudden you have to come to the medical center for 10 sessions, 10 weeks. You have to give up one Saturday in your life. You have to learn, you have to figure out how to carve out 45 or 60 minutes a day to practice uh, all the various home practices. And that means you're going to have to negotiate with your family for that 60 minutes. And you're going to probably have to alter your life in some way because nobody in 2013 in the United States has a spare hour in the day, or most people don't. So they have to make it. You won't find it. You actually have to make it. And and so and so in that sense there's a real, you know, give and take here. It's it you really begin to discover that this is a participatory process. I'm gonna get out of this what I put into it. It is gonna involve me taking a measure of responsibility that I may not have taken before in the context of my medical care because because by and large, we've all been inculcated into a system that said, you get sick and we'll take care of you. But but that's a myth. And and in America, at least, we know that healthcare as we have known it as a delivery system is dead. It's not healthcare, it's disease care. And there's a, certainly a lot of room for disease care, but it isn't healthcare at this point in time and it, for it to move from where it is into health care it's going to take uh and it's going to take people becoming uh engaged for people to be become much more participants in their own health and well-being to become much more literate about their health and and MBSR is simply one vehicle uh, for this kind of what we call participatory medicine. And that's exciting to me because I think that ultimately we all have to, in some ways, shoulder the responsibility for our lives. And and certainly that doesn't mean abandoning medicine. I think the way we've seen it work here is, is that 
physicians refer a lot of their patients here. So, you know, in 30 years of 35, almost 30, 34 years of being here, we've just passed the 20,000 mark of people who've completed the stress reduction program, MBSR stress reduction program here at UMass. And, and more than 5,000 physicians have referred those people. And then on top of that, a whole other cadre of healthcare professionals. I think it's because people trust that we're doing our work. We're researching it. We're publishing our results. We're not making claims that are larger than they need to be. And probably most importantly, we don't see this as alternative medicine. We see that good medicine has to do with physicians and medicine doing what they can for us. When I get a broken leg, medicine's going to do something for me. They're going to do something to me. And you know what? I want them to do it. Uh, but I think as we come to see that, you know, breaking my leg is a, an acute situation. Uh, having um, rheumatoid arthritis or heart disease or some kind of gastrointestinal problem or headaches or a sleeping disorder, uh, they're more chronic. We have to learn something about how do I live well with what I've got. And I think that that takes the, the physician doing what they can to and for us and us doing and learning about what we can do for ourselves. And if you take those two approaches and put them together, I think you get a very interesting synergy a very powerful synergy that may be more powerful than either approach by itself. And I think that that's where medicine and healthcare are heading. I think that healthcare reform in America is about people becoming more engaged. And mindfulness and mindfulness training is one of those ways that people can become more engaged in learning about themselves and and having at least the capacity to ask themselves the question, how do I want to live my life? How do I want to inhabit my life? And perhaps having some approach or some means or some methods or tools for actually uh, living into that question. You know, at the beginning of our conversation, Saki, you talked about mindfulness as an act of love. And as you're speaking right now, I'm imagining someone who says, you know, I know that my life would be better if I had a practice like MBSR, but I don't know if I quite have enough self-regard or self-love, whatever the word would be, to do it. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not quite there yet. How do you help that person cross the bridge? Uh, yeah, it's a great question, and you know they don't have to have it. Uh, I think the hardest in 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 the, in the stress reduction program, this is a very interesting kind of process. So, you know, people call, maybe their physician refers them. We call them. We send them out information about it. We enroll them in a free orientation session. It's required before the course begins. Uh, this isn't a marketing conversation. It's to re try and respond to your question, and then of course they decide to either enroll or not enroll. And so they've had all this front-end information. They've had contact with our with our staff one way or another. Then they've met the staff at the orientation session. They've gotten a taste of what the course would be like and some context about, you know, our life here at UMass and, you know, the research behind it and all of that. And still, still, Tammy, I think the hardest thing for people to do in the entire eight weeks of the MBSR course is to cross the threshold into that classroom the first day. Because I think in those moments, they are saying yes. They may not know exactly what they're saying yes to, but I believe that they're saying yes to themselves. They may not have a lot of self-regard. They may not have a sense of self-love. That's okay. They are still saying yes in one sense of saying, I'm worth it enough to give this a try. 
that's as much as I care about. That's all that's required is you cross the threshold, then I'm going to be here in relationship with you. And I'll do whatever I can to to be of assistance to you as you explore this process over the next eight weeks. And that's enough. You don't have to have a prerequisite. But you have to be able to say yes, because when you say yes and cross that threshold, you're also saying no. You're saying no to a certain kind of complacency, no to perhaps a a whole set of beliefs or a belief system about yourself and about what you are and that you are not capable of. And quite frankly, that's all going to be challenged in the context of an MBSR course anyway. Um, Happens all the time to people. But that threshold crossing is the big yes. It's the big yes. And it it might be a really quiet yes. It might just be, okay, I'll give this a try. I'll give this a try. And really what they're saying is, is I'm going to give myself a try. And one final question, Saki. You mentioned that over 20,000 people now have taken the initial... They've completed it. Have completed the MBSR yeah, training. more than 20,000 started so more than 20,000 have completed it, and yep. now here the MBSR training program is being offered as an online course, and this creates the opportunity for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of more people to complete this training now available online. And I'm wondering if you have a vision, a vision for how this will ripple out into the world. You could say a vision for a mindful society, people engaged in mindfulness. What do you think might come from MBSR training being widely available? Well, that's a, that's a really, um, uh, how shall I say, that question comes with a lot of, um, uh, it's fraught with danger and it's fraught with Let's just say it's an opportunity, and there's, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's all sorts of possibilities in that. So, of course, one of the most critical variables in the in, in what you're asking, Tammy, is is about teachers. Are there enough competent teachers? They don't have to be perfect. They just have to be good enough. Well, what does that mean? And so, and so, one of my concerns is 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 yes, there are more people that want to take MBSR courses, and and there are more people saying they're MBSR teachers. And I certainly am concerned about. I can't police it, but I'm concerned about the quality of those teachers. And so that's why the center has a pretty intensive and global training program um, to see if we can. Um, be very attentive to the quality of MBSR teachers that that are uh, out there in the world, so that people who encounter them in in you know across the world have a good teacher, have a competent teacher who understands uh, the methodology more than just from a book or from taking a class. Um, uh, the online course that you that sounds true and the center for mindfulness uh, you know you've you that you've you know supported so beautifully the 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 official MBSR online course that we're going to launch in a month or so um in September is um it's incredibly exciting to me because for just the reason that you're describing is is that you know it won't be perfect, but I I trust it, and and I hope that you know I I've done it, I've engaged in it, and continue to engage in it with you and your your team and and our team here because I am excited about the potential for it to create access uh, to people to to a training process that I feel I can speak well for. Uh, and can say, well, it doesn't com- 
completely represent an MBSR course because you're not doing it in a group and you're not getting the benefit of a, of a kind of group interaction. The basic instructions, the basic uh, home assignments, the ways that we will explore uh, the various dimensions of stress and stress hardiness and resilience and reactivity are true to the work uh, that we've been engaged in at UMass for 34 years. That's an incredible opportunity. And I'm very grateful that you've made this opportunity available and that we could partner in it. And so so in that sense, I hope and envision that this course will, will be another uh, stone, if you will, one more beautiful stone in a in uh, in a kind of um a kind of universal uh temple that perhaps is being built by every by people all over the world uh in in and it's not a temple of 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 you know bricks and mortar but what you're describing as this more mindful society a society where people are far more attentive to each other, where we recognize that your health and my health are completely and inextricably linked, and 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 the ways that we treat this planet uh, in one part of the world are is inextricably linked to how it is uh, being experienced by people in another part of the world. So yeah, I'm excited about it, and you know when we. When we when we created the Mindful Society Conference in New York two years ago, uh, it came out of my own vision of feeling like it's the time. It's time we need a kind of people's meeting of of uh, where this becomes more commonplace. This becomes more available to people. This becomes much more readily. Uh, a part of the national or international or basically the human fabric this capacity to to study to practice to relate to our lives to the world around us to the people around us in ways that are more kind caring compassionate awake uh wise if you will and this course this online course is i hope a vehicle that many people will will uh, avail themselves of and find valuable. So I'm excited about it. I've been speaking with Saki Santarelli, a very humble, honest, and warm conversation. Thank you so much, Saki. Oh, it's my pleasure, Tammy. It's a pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Along with Florence Malio Meyer of the Center for Mindfulness, Saki has created a new comprehensive online training course on mindfulness-based stress reduction with Sounds True. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.